This morning we're going to be in the first five verses of Galatians chapter 3. Sometimes doctrinal error needs to be dealt with gently. We see that pattern for us in Acts chapter 18 when Apollos arrives on the scene, a mighty man, eloquent in the scriptures, but yet he only knew the baptism of John. And so Aquila and Priscilla call him aside privately and explain the way of God more accurately to him. In this case, he stood as one in need of more light of the truth. At other times, doctrinal error among believers needs to be strongly rebuked. And that's what we see here in verses 1 through 5 of Galatians chapter 3. Paul uses strong language here. He calls the Galatians, in essence, fools and tells them that they have been bewitched. What makes the difference? Should we deal gently as Aquila and Priscilla with Apollos, or shall we deal harshly and sternly as Paul with the Galatians? I think the difference lies in this. The difference is made known with whether or not you were walking in the light that you have. Apollos was walking in the light that he had. There were those more mature, those that were walking in greater light that came alongside of him and with gentleness explained the way of God to him in a way that not only helped him, but being a man mighty in the scriptures and very eloquent certainly helped the church of God as well. The Galatians had a lot of light. And they willingly chose not to walk in it. We're going to read these verses and in them, Paul says something to me that this week has really, really helped me and solidified in my mind again the importance of the very thing that we're doing now. Whether it's me or one of you or someone else standing in this place, preaching of the word of God must always be. We can't replace it with anything else. Paul says that Christ had been clearly portrayed among them as crucified. How did that happen? Through his preaching. Now, granted, he was Paul. Granted, he was the apostle especially sent to the Gentiles. Granted, he was used of God miraculously far greater than any other person, perhaps. Peter might rival that somewhat. But yet the truth remains that it is through preaching the mysterious act and even Paul calls it the foolishness of preaching. That the Lord seems most pleased to bless his word and use it unto the good, the edification and even the salvation of unbelievers. I can't explain to you how the Lord does that. I can't explain how he takes my feeble attempt at preaching or anyone else's and uses that for his own purposes. But I can just affirm to you that he does and that we are not wasting our time. This is not an, an effort in futility. 
This is something that is vital for me, even as a preacher, you as a hearer, that we involve ourselves in this. And the difference, again, being, will you or will you not walk in the light that the Lord has given you? I want you to think of this as by way of the illustration. And even as I share this with you, just know that all illustrations break down. You can't follow this out to the ninth degree or it will come crashing and burning to the ground. But just think with me for a moment. Imagine you had an original painting of one of the greatest artists in history, someone like Leonardo da Vinci, perhaps. You had an original painting. And over the years, you began to look at that painting and you began to see in your mind what were defects. And then you decided one day, I'm going to fix these defects in this painting that was performed by one of the the greatest painters that have ever lived. So you go into your closet or wherever and you pull out a little paintbrush and your watercolors and, and you're going to fix the error. By the time you're done or by the time that I am done with that, nothing has been fixed, only ruined. That is how we consider how Paul is using this language with the Galatians, very strong, and it needed to be strong, because in essence, they had the greatest picture and presentation of the gospel that they could have. Paul says, clearly, Christ has been portrayed among you as crucified. And yet, here comes in the circuit of the Galatian churches, here comes false teachers who were teaching what you have heard is good, We're not going to deny it. We're just going to add something to it and make it better. And in their minds, they were going to fix the deficiencies in the gospel that had been heard. And just like we ruined the the painting, they ruined the message by trying or supposedly trying to fix it. So when we read these First five verses, notice the language when Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, therefore he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by, or by the hearing of faith? I'm going to go ahead and read verses 6 through 9. We're going to come back to this, Lord willing, in future weeks. Paul gives an example, just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you again this morning asking that you bless the reading and the attempt of preaching your word. Do so unto your own glory. 
Do so for the good and the building up of believers here in this place. And do so also for the salvation of any lost. Lord, we pray all of these things would be accomplished according to your purposes, according to your goodness, your kindness to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that we're going to see in verse 1 is what I've termed a wake-up call to the spiritually undiscerning. A wake-up call to the spiritually undiscerning. All three of these words, especially the first two, and this first exclamation, O foolish Galatians, are important. The first, comprised in English of just one letter, an exclamation of strong emotion. The questions that we ask of this, is Paul here angry? Is he frustrated? Is he sad? Considering the gravity of the situation, and I'll I'll take you back to the last verse of the second chapter to remind you of the gravity of the situation. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Paul is saying, if you aren't believing in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, basing all of your hope and trust and faith in him, then his death was vanity. That's the gravity of the situation. So the answer to that question, is Paul angry, frustrated, sad? He's all of those things, I think, rolled into one. And he is using language to get across a point to these Galatians. He's trying to shake them. It's as if they are under a spell, and that's not hocus pocus. That's the word that he uses that we're going to see here, bewitched. They needed something or someone to come alongside of them and so expose the truth to them that they could see it clearly again. Sometimes that's what we need, isn't it? Sometimes we need someone to come alongside of us again and so clearly expose the truth to us that we see it again and we're left thinking to ourselves, what was I thinking? Why did I ever go this this route in the first place? Why had I ever begun to doubt certain things that I once knew to be solid and foundational truths? And so he uses this word, which no doubt would have arrested their attention. It was the practice of the early churches to read Paul's epistles openly, publicly. And so whoever was reading gets down to this section of the letter. No doubt when he says these first three words, everyone's ears perk up and every eye is raised. At least, I suppose, that is what Paul was hoping would happen. The next word is very important. Foolish. Literally, this word means to not understand, to not ponder, or to not spend long in meditation. Some have translated it as lacking spiritual perception or discernment. This is the word that Jesus spoke to, the, to those who were walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. He comes alongside of them. They don't recognize him. They are downcast. He asks why. They say, are you the only person that hasn't heard what's taken place in the last few days? And then Jesus begins to explain to them, beginning 
in the law and the prophets, how it all points to himself. And he says in the 25th verse of the 24th chapter, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Again, same context. They were not walking in the light they had been given. O foolish ones, and slow of heart, not believing, and in all the prophets have spoken. In other words, it's right there. Read it, believe it. But you are at this moment spiritually imperceptive, undiscerning. This is not for a lack of knowledge, but for a rejection of knowledge. And that's, that same thing applies to how I began. How do we know whether to gently come alongside someone or to sternly rebuke? I think this has to be determined in that person's life. Are they believing what they believe because they have lacked certain knowledge or just because they're rejecting it? If they're lacking it, come alongside them and inform them. If they're rejecting it, shake them in hopes that they will come to realize the truth yet again. The Galatians, in essence, to go back to the illustration of the painting, have bought the ruined painting. They have seen it, supposed it to be better than the original, and purchased it by going after it. This word, foolish, which interestingly enough, those of you who have J.B. Phillips' paraphrase, and I'm not here commending that, that paraphrase for intense Bible study, it will not help you in that regard. But it is profitable to read as a commentary. It's profitable to read as to see how he interprets different words. And he interprets this phrase, O foolish Galatians, as you dear idiots of Galatia. Really puts a different perspective on it. But when we look at the word, we have to ask, does this word fit me? Does this word fit me in any way? Because if it does, I I want to know it so that I can repent of my wrong belief. Sadly, This word is very descriptive of many in our own day who have been exposed to the truth, who have had the light as far as men can spread the light given to them, and yet they've willfully chosen not to walk in it and have bought the ruined painting instead. So if that's me or if that's you, this word applies If we're walking in some kind of error just because we don't know any better, then this word doesn't necessarily apply. We just need to be better taught. Again, this is a definition of those willingly having chosen to reject clear truth. Don't be one of those. Don't be a foolish Galatian in that respect. And this results from, I suppose, a flippant and unconcerned attitude concerning the truth of the living God. 
This is an accusation that will stick to more of us than we would like. This is an accusation that we find leveled against us with all justice far more often than we would like. Those who have a flippant and unconcerned attitude concerning the truth of the living God and the way of salvation. If someone is preaching the gospel or sharing their understanding of the gospel with you and it's wrong, it's okay to say it's wrong. You can do so in love, but you can expose error. You don't have to tolerate it. You can show it to be what it is. In fact, as Christians, that's our responsibility. That's our duty. Now, we shouldn't glory in it. Some take it too far and glory in those situations and, and live for those types of moments where there's agitation and confrontation. That shouldn't be the desire that we have, but given opportunity to expose error, we should do so. And that's what Paul is doing for us here. We don't want to be those that have an unconcerned or flippant attitude about the Word of God. And that shows itself when we just don't care that someone's living in error. Or we just don't care that what's being preached or taught or what we're reading, if it doesn't really align with Scripture, it's okay. That's flippancy. And that's taking what has been clearly portrayed among us. Jesus Christ is being crucified and choosing to walk in different light. So Paul moves from this arresting of their attention. Oh, you foolish Galatians. And he asks them a series of questions. In this series of questions, he asks them, no doubt, in order again to help them understand just how far they had moved from the truth of the gospel that they had believed in the beginning. And it's they've made a, a mighty move away from what they had initially believed. Notice the first part of the question. Who has bewitched you? This word bewitched literally means to give an evil eye, which is important later. Remember that. It also can mean to cast a spell over or to fascinate by an irresistible power. Now, I don't think for a moment that Paul actually thought that the Galatians were under some evil spell. But I do think that he is using this language to arrest them and to teach us, as well as he taught them, that doctrinal error really has two sources. Doctrinal error, the first source is just our own ignorance. We need to be further and better instructed. But the second source of doctrinal error must certainly be some kind of demonic activity. Might I remind you that Satan is described for us in Scripture as the adversary of all truth. He is the one that denies the truth of God 
And he is also behind all of these false teachers. And think of all of the language that we have heard about these false teachers. They've crept in on their bellies. They've done all of these types of things to get inside the church and infiltrate the church with error and doctrinal imprecision. And as such, they are, I'll call them minions of Satan. They are doing his work of opposing the truth. Satan, the adversary, we can be sure, is active in his opposition to the truth. He does not want me or you or us collectively as a church to glory in the truths of Scripture. Anytime he can cast a shadow of doubt, anytime he can bring in any mixture of error, he will do so. And he oftentimes uses men who have been recognized as some type of leaders in the church to do it. That's what we see over and over in the epistles of Paul. There are warnings by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter. Be on your guard. Beware. After I depart, savage wolves are going to come, not sparing the flock. Be on your guard for them. So this, this word that Paul uses... To have an evil eye or or to be given the evil eye who has bewitched you. Notice what has caused Paul to use this word. And he says, who has bewitched you so that you should not obey the truth? Let me point out the obvious, which sometimes we skip over right here. Truth is not only to be believed. It's to be obeyed. In fact, they are so synonymous, or they should be. To believe is to obey. To obey is to believe. Paul says you have been, one one translator translates the word bewitched as hoodwinked. Paul says, in essence, you have been hoodwinked into the point that you are no longer obeying the truth. And then he uses this phrase, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Now the word portrayed here is an advertising term. Think of a billboard that you see as you drive along the highway and you see this enormous sign in big letters or, a, or an illustration, a photograph, something there that catches your attention. Good advertisement is simple, it's clear, it's understandable. And Paul uses that word to say that his preaching, his missionary preaching to the Galatian region and churches was so effective, not by his eloquence, not by his might or his power, but by the Holy Spirit using his words. It was so effective that Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among them. What he's doing here, I think, is is really giving them No excuse. You have no reason to be doing what you're doing, acting the way you're acting, nor believing what you are believing. This is not for lack of instruction. This is because of a clear rejection of instruction. And notice that Paul says, through his preaching, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Now, I told you the word bewitched 
And given the evil eye would come up again and be important, I think this is the reason why. Because Paul says, before whose eyes? Your eyes. Before you were bewitched. Before you were hoodwinked. These eyes now that are dimmed to the truth. There was a point and period in time when they were wide open to the truth. Jesus being clearly portrayed among you. But notice what a clear portrayal of Jesus in regards to being saved or converted or in the context of Galatians justified. Notice what a clear portrayal of Jesus entails. And it is his crucifixion. His crucifixion. Paul did not obviously have the use of any kind of illustrative helps while he preached. He couldn't point to a screen. He didn't even have a flannel graph. Remember those? He had none of those kinds of things. But what he had were words that were used by the Spirit of God. So used by the Spirit of God that, it's, that it is as if in the minds of the Galatian hearers that Jesus Christ was on a large screen. And they weren't just witnessing his crucifixion. That's not what Paul means. He wasn't saying that you clearly saw in your mind the details of his crucifixion. The blood, the nails, the crown of thorns, the spear. That's not what he means. He means in your minds, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. What he means there, you clearly saw him as your substitute. You clearly saw him there as being your sin bearer. You clearly saw him there as one who had come under the wrath of God for your sake. You clearly saw him there as being your only way of salvation. You clearly saw him there as being the Son of God, sinless and perfect. You saw him there being made sin for you. It's not the details of the crucifixion that Paul is referring to. It's the result of Christ's crucifixion. But not just the crucifixion, because in Paul's mind, crucifixion would always, I think we can say this honestly, it would always also involve resurrection. Because what good is a crucified Christ who hasn't risen from the dead? So when Paul speaks of his, before your eyes, he has clearly been portrayed as crucified, not just a substitute that died in your place and remains in the grave, but one by his taking up his life again, by being resurrected by the very power of God, now lives and intercedes for you, has overcome death, hell, the power of the grave, and the adversary of all truth. This is the clear portrayal of the preaching of the gospel. This is the clear portrayal that has happened to many of us as we have heard the gospel preached. We haven't seen it on a screen, but in our minds it's as if we see clearly, more clearly than ever, the results of Jesus Christ being crucified and that he was crucified for me. And he is my only hope. I said it last week and I want to say it again. The soul that understands this and has placed their whole 
hope of being saved in Christ, looks to him and says, Lord, if you don't save me, I will not be saved. I cannot save myself. No one else can help. If you will not do it, then there is no hope for me. But what's the good news of the gospel? He's clearly said, I will do it. Not only has he said it in word, he has said it in action. I will do it to the point of his being able to say just prior to his giving up his spirit. It's over. It's finished. It is done. I want you to consider those three words of Jesus just before his death on the cross. It is finished. What type of blasphemy What type of heresy is it to say that I need something besides the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for my own salvation? We often probably don't think of it in this way, but if we are holding to anything, whether it be circumcision, which is the issue in this book, or whether it be any other point of law keeping, if we are holding to any other thing, then what we are in effect saying is, I do not believe that it's finished. Something remains to be done, and I'm going to do it. That's why Paul says, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, you foolish ones. Why have you departed from the truth? Why have you been bewitched? Who has bewitched you? Jesus was clearly portrayed among you as being crucified. Then he asks them another question. This only I want to learn from you. He is now appealing to their own experience as Christians. He's reminding them of their initial conversion. Because somewhere along the way that has all become blurred and a thing of the past. And again... That's why Christian testimony is so important. That's why it's important for me to hear what Christ has done for you. It's important for the church to know how Christ has dealt with you. Not the details of the day of your conversion, but what He revealed to your heart when you were converted. About your own sin and a need for a Savior and all of those types of things that are bound up in our testimony that we give concerning what Christ has done for us. So the question is, this is what I want to learn from you. And notice Paul couching this in some kind of humility. He knows that they have nothing to teach him, but yet he's asking that they do. He's really wanting them to teach themselves. This is what I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Now notice whether it be in Galatians or any other epistle that deals with the keeping of the law, notice that no false teacher is ever accused of going too far in teaching anything concerning the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Because keeping law, law keeping is totally bound up in what I can do. So the question is simple. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? What's the obvious answer? 
No. Or by the hearing of faith. What's the obvious answer? Yes. Which this teaches us a couple of things that I think we do well to understand. It is popular. It has been for some time in Christian circles, not this circle, but other circles to believe in a second blessing of the Holy Spirit or that you don't receive the Holy Spirit upon your initial conversion, but sometime later. Do you see how this totally disproves that altogether? Paul said, did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The obvious answer is by the hearing of faith, which means the very earliest moment of your conversion, the spirit of God is yours as a down payment of what is to come more fully later. He is yours from the very beginning. There is no second blessing. There is no higher blessing of the Spirit. Now granted, we grow in our understanding of who the Spirit of God is, His activity, all of those things. Obviously, we grow in that. But notice these two things. Paul basically says there are two options that I'm presenting to you. Works of the law, hearing of faith. Which is it? If it's the works of the law, then you have some justification for your actions and your belief. But if you are admitting to me here and now that it was not due, your receiving of the Spirit was not due to the works of the law, then your beliefs and your actions have no ground whatsoever. You need to turn from them, repent, and as, he, as Jesus would say to the church in Revelation, do the first works. So now that we're settled that it is through the hearing of faith, what does Paul mean by these words? The hearing of of faith. Some translations help us by putting the word with, the hearing with faith. You see, there is a hearing that does not have faith mixed in with it. But there is a hearing, thank God, that is mixed with faith. We must hear the message of the gospel before we can come to Christ. That's why it's important that we are reminded in Scripture over and over again to be evangelists, not in the, what we might suppose, the proper sense of the word, but as a sent one of Jesus Christ. If ever we have hopes for our loved ones coming to faith, they must hear the gospel. And upon hearing the gospel, there is that believing which is mixed with faith, which to me is a mysterious work of the Holy Spirit of God in the life of an individual. But what results on the other side now is one being made right with God. One being made right, justified in the sight of God. Paul again calls it the hearing of faith. And so he asks them a question again. Are you so foolish? And again, are you so undiscerning? Are you so imperceptive? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? 
So he doesn't just appeal to their experience initially at conversion. He is appealing to their expectation as they live the Christian life. Paul would write in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, He who begun a good work in you will complete it. That's the point that he's trying to make by getting them to answer this question. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect or mature by the flesh? What's the obvious answer to that? No, I will not, will never be made perfect by my flesh. My flesh is something that I must continually fight against. I must mortify. I must put it to death by the help of the Spirit of God. Certainly, I am not going to, in any way, spiritually speaking, be furthered along by my flesh. And then he asks them another question in verse 4. Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was vain? I think Paul here is referring to initially in their conversion and upon their beginning of walking in newness of life with the Lord, that it cost them something. This is what we refer to as the cost of discipleship, considering the cost. Paul says, did you suffer these things in vain? If, he says, indeed it was in vain, again, he's trying to use their experience to show them that it is not law-keeping, but faith in Christ alone who was clearly portrayed among them as crucified. And then the last that we'll look at this morning in verse 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The answer again is the hearing of faith. And then the great example of Abraham, which we read earlier. So in this issue of how is a man made right before God, Here is the question, I think, that we can pose to ourselves from these five verses. Are we bewitched? Or are we living and walking obediently in the truth? That's the most serious question that you're probably going to hear today, maybe all week. As it concerns how is a man or a woman made right before God, are you bewitched thinking that it is Christ plus something else? If that's where you stand, then this, quote, spell that you are under, this evil eye that you are under is going to end in destruction. It's going to end in your eternal damnation. But if these verses have so shaken you as they were intended by Paul to do, and you realize the fallacy of trusting in anything, person, or work other than Christ for your salvation, you are not bewitched. You've believed the truth. Which is it for you? You know, there is... We've talked about the adversary of all truth and the wiles of the devil. J.C. Ryle said, 
one of the greatest wiles of the devil is to get a person to put off until tomorrow what he should do today. Why is that a great wile of the devil? Young person, let me tell you why. Although it's a bit lost on you right now at this point in your life, tomorrow is never assured. The older we get, the more we become alive to that fact. And so, young person, hear me clearly. If the Spirit of God in any way is working in your heart through conviction, if the Spirit of God is clearly portraying Jesus Christ in your heart and soul as crucified, come to Him in faith, believing. No longer being bewitched, but clearly and openly professing my hope is in no one else but Jesus Christ alone. I've got the words of an old hymn running through my mind. They're all bungled up right now, but I'd like to, maybe they'll become clear. You may have to help me. My hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Do not put off until tomorrow what should be done today. Tomorrow may never come. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come thanking you, Lord, for these verses from Paul in Galatians. Lord, we pray that you would use them for good. Lord, we desire the salvation of all present, of our unbelieving family members, fellow employees, whatever it may be. Lord, we know the gravity of the situation. Those who are believing on Jesus Christ and to the saving of the soul, we know We have believed because at some point in time you have clearly portrayed him as crucified in our heart, in our soul. And we came to him believing, trusting in him alone for our salvation and being made right before you. Father, might you bring such conviction that nothing else could be done but to come to Christ. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your kindness, for your goodness. And Lord, we trust that what you do, you always do right. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.